Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto, and we're continuing on in the series Paul and His Communities. Today we go on to the second episode that deals with Galatians, Paul's letter to Christians living in the region of Asia Minor known as Galatia. In the previous episode, we focused on the situation at Galatia, which involved certain leaders of the Jesus movement who had passed through after Paul's journey to Galatia and had been advocating circumcision among the Gentiles, among the non-Judean followers of Jesus in Galatia. Paul hears word of this in some way and responds with a letter in which he argues that circumcision is not an entrance requirement for belonging to the Jesus movement. And so in this episode we go into some of the details of Paul's response. We deal with his rhetoric in his letter to the Galatians. Also we'll deal with the question of biblical interpretation in Paul's time. And we'll use Paul as a window into the various techniques that were used by Pharisees and other Judeans like Paul in interpreting the Jewish Torah and interpreting the Jewish scriptures. We'll also get into Paul's particular response to the question of whether or not Gentiles should be circumcised. And he answers very clearly that Gentiles should not be required to be circumcised. He is not against circumcision per se, in and of itself. However, he's against other leaders of the Jesus movement advocating that Gentiles need to be circumcised. And so we'll get into the details of how he argues his point and into the question of what is his rationale in proposing that Gentiles, non-Judeans, do not need to be circumcised. Because in this respect, Paul seems to be odd in not requiring circumcision in order for Gentiles to belong to a Judean movement. But there's other ways in which Paul's view can be understood within Judaism, within Judean culture in his own time, primarily in regard to apocalyptic expectations that some other Judeans beyond Paul, Judeans that had nothing to do with Christianity, sometimes expected a flood of Gentiles coming in to worship the Judean God in the end times. And so there's a sense in which this Judean background does help us understand Paul's rationale here. So there's a rationale to both Paul's perspective and a rationale behind the opponent's perspective as we discussed in the previous episode. So I hope you enjoy this continuing discussion of early Christianity in the mid-first century. Let's move on to Paul's response now. One thing that we've already got to is the tone of Paul's response. He is quite firm in his response. You might even say he's nasty. By really putting down the opponents, he's trying to bring himself up. Don't follow them, follow me. This is how terrible they are. That sort of strategy is going on to some degree. But throughout the letter, the tone is negative, even towards the Galatians. He calls them foolish, is the example I'll give you. Right? Oh, foolish Galatians. He's trying to convince them to do something different, so he's not trying to totally alienate them. He's not going to be quite as brutal with the Galatians as he is with the opponents who have influenced the Galatians, but he's nonetheless got a harsh tone, a tone that's not at all like what we find in his letter to the Christians at Thessalonica, quite the opposite. It's a tone that's perhaps more similar to what we sometimes see in his letter to the Corinthians. 
Let's get into more of Paul's methods in addressing this situation here. Once again, Hellenistic rhetoric plays a role. In the first couple chapters, we've already seen a clear example of judicial rhetoric, where the focus is Paul defending his message over against the message of the opponents. It's partly a defense as well as an attack. And the first two chapters are all about Paul defending the legitimacy of his message, that I got it straight from God, from no person, not even from Peter and James. Therefore, my message is the legitimate message. So there's a lot of judicial rhetoric of showing the innocence of his message, as though he's in a court case and his message is on trial. That is the dominant rhetoric that we encounter. There's also deliberative elements, obviously. He's trying to get the Galatians to deliberate and not to be circumcised. What does come to the fore in terms of Paul's methods in Galatians is his use of the Bible. Let me rephrase that now so you already see a problem. His use of the Torah as his main authority to address this situation. Paul uses the law as his main authority to address this situation. This will complicate matters if you have the idea that it's Paul versus the law. Because that, again, within modern Christianity is a common way of interpreting Paul. That Paul is against the law. What Galatians is an example of is Paul saturated in the law and using it as his main authority to address a particular situation. And in the process, we get to see different scriptural techniques, different interpretive techniques that Paul uses that are also common to other Judeans in the first century. So we see a very Judean side of Paul when we're looking at Galatians, precisely because Galatians is saturated with the Torah, saturated with the Jewish scriptures, and shows us Paul's techniques in using the Jewish scriptures. And I want to outline for you today four main Jewish interpretive techniques that come out in Paul's letters overall, some of which come out very clearly in Galatians. The point of this is that these are common techniques shared by other Judeans in the first century, especially Pharisees. Remember that Paul is trained as a Pharisee. There's a sense in which, although you could say in some ways Paul is no longer a Pharisee, you could say that and be somewhat accurate. When he starts believing Jesus is the Messiah, maybe you could say in some ways he's no longer a Pharisee. However, in other ways, you've got to say Paul is very much a Pharisee. And it's precisely when you're looking at things like his interpretive techniques that you see this come to the fore. The first one I want to talk about is Midrash. Midrash is what you could say is closest to what we as moderns would call just interpretation. There's going to be a whole lot of things here that we as moderns would not accept as valid modes of interpretation that they do in the first century. But nonetheless, this is the closest to what you would get, to what we would label interpretation in the modern context. Basically, this involves the exposition of a particular passage where the Judean in question is looking to the Judean scriptures, to the Torah, and looking at a story and trying to say what that story means. Actually, this also involves applying it to your life or applying it to a particular situation. The second one that I want to draw your attention to and will help you later when you're looking at the Gospels too is typology. First century Judeans also approach scripture with the notion of types in their mind, typology. Namely, that there are certain types of figures in the Hebrew Bible. David, the perfect king. Elijah, the ultimate prophet. Moses, the great savior of a people. These are types. 
And, and Judeans in the first century think typologically. They interpret people as a new Elijah. They interpret people as, there's a new David, you're going to be our king. They think of figures from the Hebrew Bible, have them in their minds already from the stories that they're familiar with from the Torah, and interpret their daily lives and interpret what's going on around them, sometimes by typecasting people using types from the Hebrew Bible. This can sometimes be negative typecasting. There's a figure, Jezebel, in the Hebrew Bible that's a non-Israelite who marries an Israelite king, and the story goes that she takes him over through sex, over to the dark side of worshiping the Canaanite gods. And so Jezebel becomes the prototype of the woman who gets you to worship foreign deities. And then the book of Revelation, a Judean author in the first century that you're going to read later on in the course, when he's attacking certain followers of Jesus in Asia Minor, what label does he give to the opponents? He calls her Jezebel. When we read Matthew later on in the course, you're going to see Matthew using the typology of Moses to describe Jesus so that Jesus is the new Moses. But this is another way in which Judeans in the first century use scriptures. Is there an example of Paul thinking of a type from the past in the Hebrew Bible and applying that figure to someone in the present? Jesus as the new Adam. There's a perfect example of typological thinking. We're going to see in Galatians soon, sons of Abraham as a type. So he talks about sons of Abraham in Galatia. The third type of Judean method of interpretation that I want to point to here is allegory. Allegory is perhaps the least literal, although a lot of these other forms of interpretation are not literal as well. But allegory is, is maybe systematically not literal. Allegory involves you reading a passage in Scripture, in modern terms, the way you would put it, ignoring the literal story and finding the true hidden sense behind it. Paul does this in his use of the passage in the Torah, in the law, about Sarah and Hagar. This is one of those rare cases where he actually says he's doing allegorical interpretation. I'm in chapter 4, verses 21 and following. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? He's now going to interpret the Torah. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was boarding according to the flesh, the son of the free woman through promise. Now this is an allegory, he says. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So here he goes on to Sarah as a mountain, Hagar as a mountain. Sarah is a city, Hagar is a city. It's getting into non-literal, what you could sometimes call spiritual interpretation, finding hidden meanings behind material in the Jewish scriptures. And each interpreter will have a different hidden meaning they find, obviously. So this is the most subjective, you could say, form of interpretation for that reason. And it's accepted that that's a mode of interpretation. Someone might object to the argumentation that is involved in the interpretation. In other words, someone might object, Paul, I totally disagree with what you're concluding from your allegorical interpretation of Sarah and Hagar. This is my allegorical interpretation of Sarah and Hagar, and they might have a comeback. They're all doing the same thing in some way, aren't they? 
And so Paul is engaging in what would be typical Judean way of interpreting scripture here, even though the content of what he comes out with, the secret message that he finds behind the scripture is not what most other Judeans would agree with. Philo, a guy I've mentioned in the past that is a Judean living in the first century in in Alexandria in Egypt, loves allegory. Everything's allegorical. So that uh, even though he's not rejecting the literal importance of the Torah, nonetheless, he spends all his time doing Stoic philosophy in the process of interpreting Judean culture. In the process of doing that, loves to use allegory to say that circumcision really refers to something else, that the food laws really refer to something other than what they say they refer to, as well as referring to the food laws, and finding all kinds of secret meanings behind uh, material. So Philo, jam-packed full of allegory. Some Judeans not as fond of allegory, but all of them use it at some time. The fourth main one I want to mention to you uh, before we take a break is Pesher. Pesher is once again finding the secret meaning in something. So there's a similarity, even though there's a difference with uh, allegory. Pesher is reading scripture, assuming it applies to a concrete situation around you, historically speaking. I'm living in the Dead Sea community, on the edge of the Dead Sea, in the first century BCE. I know that in Jerusalem, there's a current leadership of the temple who I don't like. Descendants of the Maccabees are still high priests. And we have a long history of having problems with the way they've been running the temple so much so that we've gone out into the desert. I'm living out in the desert with that concrete historical situation in my mind of what's going on in Jerusalem and the history of how I've had to go out to the desert because these people weren't living purely even though they were Judean. And now I'm, going to, I'm a Judean that's going to start interpreting the Jewish scriptures in light of that real historical situation. And I'm going to find the secret meaning behind passages, for example, in the prophets. It turns out, in my view, that the prophets are actually referring to the Maccabean high priest in Habakkuk. It refers to it in this passage. It turns out that the the leader of our group, the teacher of righteousness, is referred to in the prophet Jeremiah. And in this passage, I can find the secret meaning behind Jeremiah that shows that it's talking really about our current situation and talking about the teacher of righteousness and how our leader has had a run-in with the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem. And I find all this, to modernize, in prophets that have nothing to do with the 2nd century or 1st century BCE, that have everything to do with the 8th century, 7th century, 6th century BCE. But when I'm doing Pesher, God guides me to find the hidden meaning behind passages that directly pertain to real people around me. It may seem like Jeremiah was addressing the exiles back in the 6th century BCE, but really, simultaneously, he was telling our story in the 1st century. He was telling our story in the Dead Sea sect, and he was talking about figures we know. That's how Pesher works. All right, so let's continue uh, with Paul's response here. Remember, the situation involves other Judean leaders of the Jesus movement advocating that the groups that Paul founded need to be circumcised, the the Greeks and Romans there in Galatia, and that their rationale made sense, so to speak, culturally, within Judean culture at the time, because that's a sign of being part of God's people, and it would make, make sense as requiring Gentiles, as they're entering into God's people, in order to adopt that symbol of belonging to God's people and in belonging to the covenant and belonging to the group of people who follow God's Torah, God's law. And so we saw that that's what was going on in Galatia. We know Paul objects to it, but we've got to figure out what is Paul's view on this? What can we as historians make sense out of what Paul's view is in the first century context and understand 
uh, his view. Because although he's an oddball in not requiring circumcision, so he's odd in Judean culture in that respect, there are some things about what Paul's doing that do make sense within Judean culture, even including his attitude towards the Gentiles. So there's a rationale behind the opponent's view and a rationale behind Paul's view. Both those rationales can be placed within the context of Judean culture in the first century. It's not a matter of whether you're in Judean culture or not. It's not Paul breaking off from Judaism and the opponent staying within it. It's not a clear-cut case like that. For Paul, his whole mission, even when he describes in the beginning of Galatians, he describes his autobiography, how he used to go after the members of the Jesus movement in Palestine, and that he used to persecute them because he believed that the movement was illegitimate. And then he described that there was a time where Jesus revealed himself to him. That's how he describes it. And what did Jesus tell him? Go to the Gentiles. So Paul, at the heart of everything he's doing, has this idea that God has told him that the Gentiles need to become fully a part of this Judean movement. And this is always at the top of his mind when he's doing everything, because he believed God told him to do it. This helps to explain his attitude to this specific situation at Galatia. Paul is not objecting to circumcision in his response. In fact, he says explicitly, circumcision is neither here nor there. I'm indifferent about circumcision. He says that at one point. So it's not that Paul is responding by saying circumcision is bad. Nor is Paul responding by saying the Torah is bad. Paul is not saying the law is bad. And we'll soon see how complicated Paul's view on the law is, both here and in Romans. It's not a matter of Paul versus the law. It's Paul versus the application of a specific law to Gentiles. Paul versus the application of circumcision to Gentiles. In essence, Paul is saying circumcision is not an entrance requirement for this Judean movement. Gentiles are not required to follow what was the standard within Judean culture before Paul's time. Let me give you a little context for that before we unpack more of what Paul's response is and look at some of it. What I would suggest to you may be Paul's rationale is this. Paul thinks like this. Jesus appeared to me and told me that I need to include the Gentiles in a full way within this Judean movement. I'm Paul the apocalyptic Judean. I believe we are living in an evil age because I'm apocalyptic. I'm a bit different than a few other Judeans because I believe that God sending Jesus and raising Jesus from the dead actually is the sign that the end times have already begun and that we've begun the new age already, even though the evil age is overlapping with it. We have an entirely new situation because of the action of God raising Jesus from the grave. This is how he's thinking. This new situation involves a new situation for how Gentiles are to belong to God's people. It creates a new situation for how Gentiles are to worship the Judean God and the manner in which they're to be received within God's people. The new situation is that circumcision no longer applies to Gentiles because I, the Judean, and other Judeans do agree with this. Next statement. In the end times, when God intervenes in his final intervention to wipe out evil, and to judge evil from good. When God does that, the Gentiles will start to worship the Judean God. 
Some Gentiles will be considered evil and be destroyed along with the evil ones in the final battle. However, those who survive will start to worship the Judean God and recognize that our God was the right God all along. So there's Judeans who think apocalyptically who have that scenario. The scenario of when the end time comes, there will be a mass of Gentiles who will suddenly recognize the power and superiority of the Judean God and start worshiping the Judean God. If you have that scenario in your mind and you're apocalyptic Judean, and the end hasn't come yet, you'd go, okay, in the future, there'll be a swarm of Gentiles coming to worship the Judean God. Well, Paul believes the end time's already here. That Jesus being raised from the dead is a sign that the end times have already begun. And it seems that we can explain his notion that Gentiles do not have to be circumcised along these lines. This is the swarm of Gentiles coming to worship the Judean God. None of those other Judeans who talk about the Gentiles worship Judean God in the end times talk about them being circumcised. Maybe some of them assume it, but none of them say it. None of them say, in the end times, swarms of Gentiles will adopt the Torah and be circumcised and can be a proselyte and join local synagogues. None of them talk like that. They all just talk about swarms of Gentiles in the end times coming to worship the Judean God. And it seems that Paul feels that this is what's happening and that he has an instrumental role in making it happen because God told him to do it. And so what Paul thinks is that Gentiles should not be required to follow certain aspects of the law. Galatians is jam-packed full of Paul using the Torah to show what they need to do and that using the authority of the Torah to establish what the Galatians need to do. So it's not a matter of the Galatians need to throw out the Torah. It's that Gentiles are no longer required to be circumcised. The next thing on his list is Gentiles no longer have to follow the food laws in light of this end time situation. The situation has changed. The Torah is still the authority. However, certain aspects of the Torah do not apply to Gentiles who are now coming in in the end times. This seems to be a possible scenario for explaining the rationale of Paul in being odd and not requiring circumcision. He's not odd, though, in the sense that there are other Judeans who have some of the ideas he has. They just did not apply it to this idea of Jesus being the sign of the end times. So that gives you a little bit of a heads up on what the rationale is here. So that it's not a non-Judean rationale. It's a very Judean apocalyptic rationale behind Paul's idea of including Gentiles, it seems. That's a theory, though, I just presented to you. A theory that pieces together some of the evidence we have and makes sense of it. There are other possible theories you could come up with. Something that came out a little bit in what I just said there is that Paul's attitude towards the Torah and the law is situation-specific. So that when he's writing to a specific situation in Galatia, where people are strongly advocating circumcision, he sounds awfully negative about the law even though there's positives too, even in Galatians, that I'm going to point out to you. Depending on what problem he's dealing with, his attitude towards the law might sound more negative or positive. So that if you turn to Romans, and you will later on and read Romans, the situation there is somewhat different. Here at Galatia, the way you could put it is that Judeans are thinking they're superior to Gentiles because Gentiles are not circumcised and part of the covenant. Judeans superior to Gentiles is the scenario. When he's writing to Romans, the problem we're going to read about there, and the letter as a whole shows that it's Gentiles thinking they're superior to Judeans because the Judeans are weak and have to follow the food laws. And there he's quite different in the way he talks about it. 
there's similarities. So there's still a mindset Paul has that affects how he talks about the law and affects how he talks about Gentiles and how he affects his whole ideology. So there's some consistency. However, first of all, he could be inconsistent arbitrarily, but on top of that, he's seemingly inconsistent as well. Seemingly inconsistent because he's addressing very specific situations. And his opinion when he's addressing a specific situation might be entirely different than how he would express it if it was a different situation. And that's what you need to remember when you're reading Galatians. You're not reading Paul's systematic statement on what he thinks about the Torah. You're reading Paul's feelings when he's faced with a situation where people are advocating circumcision among a particular group he founded. Let's take a look at some of the details now and see uh, about how he argues his point in countering the opponents. First of all, the overall approach of the letter as a whole is a defense of his own gospel in the process of attacking another one. So this defensive mechanism we've already noted. And he's defending a circumcision-free gospel is the way of summarizing it. And we've talked about how the issue of including Gentiles is central to his whole mission. And that that's the guiding principle of everything he's talking about here. But the way he goes about convincing the Galatians is by using the Torah. He uses the law as his main authority to convince Gentiles in Galatia not to follow the law of circumcision. He's using the Torah in order to argue that point. And he does it by doing a midrash of the story of Abraham. A midrash that many other Judeans in the first century would disagree with and would have an entirely different midrash, but every Judean would have a different midrash. Paul's might stand out a bit more because he's going to turn on its head the typical way of interpreting this story in the Torah. This is his arguments. I'll summarize it and then we'll look at some of the evidence. The first covenant that God ever made with anyone, that Yahweh made with anyone in the history of humankind, was with Abraham. He was dealing with the passage that we now call Genesis chapter 15. And there you have the story of Abraham relating to Yahweh and Yahweh making a promise to Abraham. A promise that Abraham will have all sorts of offspring, even though up to that point in the narrative of Genesis, Abraham has been unable to have children at all through his wife, Sarah. To this point, Genesis chapter 15. And what God promises, Yahweh promises to Abraham, is that you're going to have offspring as many as the stars. Look up at the stars. That's how many offspring you're going to have. So that's the story in Genesis 15. And that is the first covenant that Yahweh makes with anyone. And that's especially what's on Paul's mind here. This is the first covenant. And for Paul, it's the covenant that overrides all other covenants. This is the Judean madrash he has of the Abraham story. He's then going to argue that chapter 17, later in the story of Abraham. So it's somewhat of a literal interpretation of the Abraham story. It's dealing with the chronology of Abraham, Paul's rationale. It's that Abraham was first had this covenant with God, and it was the promise God made was that he'd have all kinds of children. And then in chapter 17, chronologically in the story of Abraham, comes what other Judeans would say is a finalization of the covenant that God made namely circumcision. Abraham gets circumcised in chapter 17 of Genesis. The order of this story means everything for Paul's interpretation. Circumcision came later than the covenant, is what Paul's going to argue. Not only that, he's going to argue that Abraham was a Gentile when God made a covenant with him. Abraham is the first Gentile 
to be in a covenant with Yahweh. And anyone who follows the procedure of Abraham will be a son of Abraham. The order of the story of Abraham is everything for Paul. Let's take a look at it now. Chapter 3 is where this midrash of Abraham really comes out. Let's look at this first quotation that Paul gives in chapter 3, verse 6. And he's going to quote the story to begin with. Thus Abraham, quote, believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, end quote. That is quoting from Genesis chapter 15, that first covenant that we're talking about here. And let's read on here. So you see that it is men of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the good message beforehand to Abraham. By the good message of faith being taught to Abraham in the covenant that God made with him, that all Gentiles were becoming part of that covenant. All Gentiles who believe God, who believe that what God says he'll do, he'll do. So let me go on with this here. Stern verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the good news, good message beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are men of faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. In you shall all the nations, the Gentiles. This idea that Abraham had faith and believed what God said he would do would actually happen before he was circumcised. And that anyone who has faith and believes that what God says he'll do, he will do, even if you're a Gentile, or rather mainly if you're a Gentile, are sons of Abraham and are part of the covenant that God, Yahweh, made with Abraham back in Genesis 15. So that's the rationale of what's going on here. He then goes on to these more uh, obscure interpretations, obscure from modern context. In the next whole section, just to give you a glimpse into more interpretive techniques, he jumps around from different passages all over the Hebrew Bible based on wordplay. Goes with the word curse. He then remembers passages all over the place in the Hebrew Bible that have the word curse in it. He then does a juxtaposition of them and comes out with whatever his interpretation is going to be. So in that next section there is a wordplay style interpretation. So let's look at Genesis 15 before we move on. So in Genesis 15, that quote comes from the uh, phrase that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness comes from Genesis 15. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of Yahweh came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. You're going to have descendants the number of the stars. And here's where the quote that Paul uses comes from. And Abram believed Yahweh, and Yahweh considered it as righteousness. Abram's childless in the narrative, and here he's being promised not to have one child, but to have offspring like you wouldn't believe. He's old, maybe not going to have children. So this idea of God promising something that seems unbelievable, and him believing, is in Paul's mind. As the model of how Gentiles become part of God's people. Of how Gentiles become part of the covenant with Yahweh. They do so by believing that what God promises he will do, even if it seems crazy. So that's what he's interpreting there, Genesis 15. Then later on, he underlines this whole issue of the chronology being important. Look further down in verse 17 of the same chapter. And thankfully, Paul comes back to some sense here. And he says, this is what I mean, verse 17. 
This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The promise to the Gentile Abram before he was circumcised is never voided. And every Gentile has the option for that covenant. The circumcision two chapters later in Genesis does not void the covenant. The giving of the commandments on Mount Sinai does not annul the covenant between Abram as a Gentile and Yahweh. All Gentiles can be part of that covenant. So that's his argument. Most likely, his opponents would naturally turn to the story of Abraham as well in order to show why their rationale makes sense. Why should you Gentiles be circumcised? Well, if you look at the story of Abraham, the first person that was ever circumcised, the first person who ever had a covenant with God, the opponents would say, you see that in Genesis 17, the symbol of the covenant was that all male members of God's people need to be circumcised. So perhaps the opponents of Paul are using the exact same story, interpreting it quite differently. They have a different midrash on the story of Abraham than Paul has. Their midrash would sound a little bit more, though, like most other Judeans' midrash. Most Judeans in the first century, is what I'm trying to say, would be more focused on Genesis 17 than they would be on Genesis 15. It's this choice Paul makes, because of his wanting to include Gentiles, but his choice to focus on Genesis 15 as the main story and to downplay other aspects of the story is precisely what makes him different than most other first century Judeans who would emphasize chapter 17 and maybe downplay chapter 15. They would see it as the culmination of the the initial covenant. There's not more than one covenant, there's just one, and it's the finalization of the covenant when Abraham is circumcised, the opponents might argue. Paul, though, says there was a covenant there, and it's the one that never gets voided before ever Abraham was circumcised. That's the main argument, then, what I've just presented to you. A midrash of Abraham's story from the law, from the Torah, becomes the main authority for Paul's position here. But one thing to close on in the last 30 seconds or so here is this. Paul's view of the Torah is negative when it has to do with excluding Gentiles and positive in other respects. Even in Galatians itself, in chapter 5, verse 14, that sounds an awful lot like some other rabbis of the first century. When rabbis of the first century are asked, how would you summarize the Torah? A common answer is this. For the whole law is fulfilled in one saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm quoting from Paul here. But there are rabbis in the first century that we have evidence of from other sources, including the rabbi Jesus, who, when they're asked how to summarize the law quickly, they quote that statement. Paul's not here saying, the whole law which you should get rid of is summarized. No, he's saying, the whole law that you should follow is summarized in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is taken from the Torah. He expects the Gentiles to follow the Torah, but he doesn't expect them to follow certain aspects of the Torah. So it's a complicated thing when you ask, what is Paul's view of the law? And we'll get into it further with Romans as well. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music of this podcast is my own remix of Brian Eno and David Burns' Help Me Somebody from My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, copyright 1981, None Such Records, with an Uzbek vocal sample by Savara Nazarkhan from her song Kunlarim, copyright 2007, Real World Music. Both are used with permission under Creative Commons type licenses.